Hey, hey guys, Tyson here from relaxrunning.com. This is the Relax Running Podcast. Uh, hey, I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but it's true. The guest on the show today is massive. Uh, it's absolute legend. I, um, I've got to give a big shout out to Dean Huffer, who's a physiotherapist at South Yarra Spine and Sports Medicine, who got in contact with me a couple of months ago and said, hey, mate, you've got to get in touch with this bloke, John Quinn, because he's a, he's a bit of a genius. Uh I'm so glad I did. Dean sent me through a biography of the bloke and I had a read and, and was pretty much immediately interested in, in what he had to say. And uh, man, I called him just to suss out whether he would want to be on the podcast. And through the course of that half an hour conversation, I uh, I just could not wait to run down um, and, and see him next time he was in Melbourne. So he's based in Sydney. He's down in Melbourne once a month to work with patients down here. And I just managed to sneak uh, uh, about 45 minutes or an hour into his hectic schedule. Uh, for those of you who had never heard of John Quinn, he's a gee, he's a man of many talents. He's been around for a while, and uh, his knowledge really expresses the you know the, not only the the genius that he is, but the insight that he has to the sport of distance running. Um, for our Aussie listeners, John was uh, the head fitness coach at the Essendon Bombers um, from 1998 to 2008. Uh, after his approach by Kevin Sheedy to come and do some work with them. Um, he spent five years at the GWS Giants. Uh, he's been the Olympic head track and field coach. I think that was his role at the Sydney Olympics here. He's an exercise physiologist. He has a crazy insight into biomechanics and the technical side of running. He works closely with athletes to, you know, uh, from the 400 to the marathon to help eliminate any of the unnecessary little habits that they've built up in their, ta- uh, in their technique. And, uh, man, he's just uh, – what I loved about John is – uh, a lot of super smart blokes don't have that ability to break down what they've learnt academically into really simple terms, so it makes sense to the rest of us. And I think John, he has that skill. He can take the complex ideas and speak about them simply. Um, and I, I left this room just excited to get him back on the show. It didn't go for as long as I want. Uh, I think we had about forty-five minutes together because there was a little bit of confusion with the with the timetabling. Um, so I thought we had two hours. Turns out we only had an hour. Uh, so by the time we got recording, it, it turned out that we had about a forty-five minute chat. Um, I can hear a little bit of background noise because we were in like a side room uh, of the of the South Yarra. Um, Spinal Sports Medicine Clinic, so you can hear a couple of the patients talking, laughing outside, but it's not too bad. Uh, John was a, a an absolute gun, and he, he let us know that there's two of our relaxed running members who are going to get free access to get their technique assessed, um, to look at any areas of their technique that might be causing injury or just little inefficiencies that can be ironed out with uh, you know an, an eye like John. So if you're interested in getting access to that, jump on board the Relax Running membership. Uh, you'll also get bonus podcasts. Um, you'll get behind the scenes material of the you know, the, the interviews where I get the camera out, ask them specific questions about running, running performance, and just try and find out how you guys can improve. So it's uh, it's designed to help transform your running and uh, and just to keep you entertained as you are out running as well. So if you're not a member yet, jump on board. We've got a growing community there. Uh, as I said, five bucks a month, it's uh, it's cheap because it's brand new, so it's growing. But uh, if you get on board, you'll, you'll never pay more than five bucks, no matter how many uh, people, how many videos, how many podcasts, whatever we get on there. So jump on board now. Um, this was a great podcast. This is, I'm really excited to, to bring it to you. Uh, I don't think there's anything else that I had to say. No, there's not. So, um, Hey, it's short and sweet. It's a taste tester into John Quinn. Uh, but, uh, I can guarantee 
that in the next couple of months he'll be back on the show and uh, I'm going to try and book in a bit longer with him because I, I felt like we could have talked for hours and hours. Hope you guys all enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, hey, enjoy. This is myself and John Quinn. and you wouldn't put up with it in your car. Like if your car had a wheel imbalance, you'll go and get it fixed. But when it's you, well, yeah, I just get used to it and run through it, that's the way I am. You ignore the fact that your shoes wear down on one side, on the left, well, that's just the way I am. But you wouldn't do that with your car. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And strength, it's an easy way to do it. That, and I think um, we underrate the need for recovery. Yeah. And that it's a, a, recovery is a complete thing it's not just about training your body doesn't differentiate stress of say a training session with the stress of a um, a relationship breakdown or the a deadline at work or um, maybe a looming um, redundancy uh, or bills that you can't pay it's put your body under stress you go running you think it's a stress release but that's an additional different stress on your body somewhere you pay the piper yeah it's so interesting because i think a lot of athletes um, I think we'll just get into it because I'm not sure yeah. if these guys are coming back or they've uh, mm. just set the camera up here. Um, a, a lot of athletes that I speak to when you bring up the subject of, of recovery, they'll speak about the very obvious things like, you know, make sure you're getting your sleep and make sure you're getting a massage from time to time and, um, you know, just addressing any soreness. Mm. But when it comes to the lifestyle factors that you just mentioned there, I think it's, it's probably quite foreign to a lot of people. Look, I think if you look back historically at where we've come, uh, in any event, but particularly, say, endurance events, we haven't really progressed much in the last 60, 70 years in terms of the top-end performances. Um, and I think there's two areas, almost like the Holy Grail, where we will get those improvements. And one, is you know, a genuine understanding rather than the hit-miss of recovery. And I think it's a very individualised issue and it comes from everything from say massage through to nutrition so it's a very broad topic in and of itself and the other one i believe is in when we understand uh, as a uh, in terms of training the whole impact of neurological training and how do we harness uh, our neural tension and neural power into uh, movement I think when we get that, that's that's going to be a massive breakthrough in terms of performance across all events. But for now, uh, we're really focusing on nutrition and uh, hydration, these sort of things, which is fantastic. But I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg with it. Yeah. So that idea of neural training, something I've never heard of before. That's the first I've, I've ever heard of it. So when you're speaking about you know preparation for an event, you're speaking obviously not only about diet and training, mm. but you're speaking about using your brain in a way that just further enhances it. What does it look? It could be it could be brain related, but I think it's also uh, posture related. And uh, you can innovate a muscle by the angle of a joint, and the muscle's innovated by a nerve. So how do we do that? I mean, you hear these uh, stories. I've actually uh, spoken to people in emergency services and they can't believe that um, a husband's been able to lift the car and drag the child out of a car. Um, where do you get that strength from? 
if we could channel that into the into 100 meters or into a 10k or into a marathon how can we channel our neural energy that that innovates the muscle to its maximum we've got some tricks up our sleeve uh, in terms of uh, neural excitation but yeah i think in 20 years 30 years our future generations are going to laugh at our naivety in terms of uh, neural training and uh, yeah to me that's the holy grail how do i how do i tap into that but for people listening to this i've got to confess i'm my main area of expertise is in uh, explosive events so uh, the 400 is sort of like my area of greatest interest but I think it just goes right down the chain to whatever event you're running. Mm. I just want to pick your brain a little bit more from my understanding. So neural excitation, um, what is that if you're going to implement neural excitation? I don't even know what that means. Well, I've been mucking around with it for a few years now. Like I, if I give somebody an exercise in the gym, for example, you can do the squats all you like, but how does that express itself into a movement? So when we do a squat, then I'll, I'll, I call it a superset, I'll link it with, say, box jumps. So the muscle's turned on, basically, what do you want me to do? If you look at a squat, what's that got to do with running? You don't see people doing that when they're running, but that explosivity of a jump, they certainly do that. So but let's turn the muscle on and then show it, the, the velocity or the speed at which we want it to move at. The contraction speed, to me, is more important than the amount of weight that you're lifting. And I think we get really obsessed. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in and around AFL players in football here in Australia, and. Uh, I think we get really obsessed with how much are they benching, how much are they squatting. Who cares? That's that's not it. It's how quickly can you express that strength that's the importance. And that's what I'm talking about when we talk about neural. So, for example, we might do a bench press, but then I'll superset that with a plyometric push-up. But they've got to do a push-up and then clap the hands as quickly as they can um, and, and repeat that. So it's a how quickly can you get the muscle to contract forcefully is the important thing. Mm, and this is, uh, for as you said, from the sprinting all the way through to the marathon, that this is potentially relevant form of training? Well, I, I get a little bit oh, disappointed. It's too strong a word. I, I don't spend that much time dwelling on it. But I, I can't understand why the distance fraternity don't see strength training as a part of their holistic program. It's mile after mile after mile. And I do understand the importance from a physiological point of view uh, for heart, lung, fitness, and so on, an economy of movement, all of that's great. But then the vast majority of people that I see coming come in to see me rather at the clinic setting with injuries are distance runners that are breaking down because they have a muscle imbalance, they're not strong. And a lot of coaches across all events, but they look at strength training as being an area of specialty that they don't have to know about. Where I think they should be just as switched on to what strength training does as they understand about the number of hill reps that you should do or what the arm drive should do or how you can develop uh, mobility. But it just seems to be that's someone else's problem or we just turn away from it. And it's actually very simple and it's a very logical approach. But a lot of our injuries can be prevented if you look at strength balance in a body. Mm. I was speaking to uh, Genevieve Griggs, and one of, mm. I'm not sure if you, yeah, she's a, obviously for those listening, one of Australia's best female Absolutely. distance runners. And uh, she was mentioning to me that the strength training is 
similar to what you're saying, a, a really overlooked component. Like we've, we can just run all day and we've just got that ability to keep on going. But when it comes to actually just enforcing that little bit of strength to complement everything else that we're doing, it's, it's quite looked over. And I, I thought it was really interesting because coming from the distance running sort of scene myself, I, I know firsthand that that's, that that's true. I'm not sure where that misconception comes from or that lack of understanding. Oh, I think it's ignorance and it's fear and it's a very foreign environment, especially if you're a, a distance athlete, say, and you, you tend not to be in the gym much and, you know, um, it, it's just a very foreign environment. But I'd look at it in the sense if you've got a, a glass and you can only put so much water in that glass before it starts to overflow. So look at where you're getting most bang for your buck and if you're doing the same things over and over and getting the same results, one, you've either plateaued, or that's the absolute definition of stupidity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So you look at, you know, why do I keep getting injured in this manner or why am I always getting an injury on the right side of my body, for example, and look for reasons outside of that. It might be mobility. It could be something as simple as proprioception as imbalance, but in all likelihood it's to do with strength or, or an imbalance in that strength. And it's a, a relatively significant investment to put into that, uh, to, in, in terms of a return on your investment, to put into that. We, we, I look at athletes, for example, doing drills, but they do the drills poorly, but they still insist on doing 15, 20 minutes of drills before a training session. So what they're doing in most cases, in my opinion, they're practicing to run slowly as fast as they can. <laughs> How can that make any sense? Whereas what they should be doing is even spending that 15, 20 minutes in um, strengthening, stretching, balancing the body out and, uh, and going that way. There has been an increase from my observation in people using things like foam rollers and the latest trend I'm seeing is people with these uh, massage guns and doing those sort of things. I think we've got a little bit of research to do into that. We've got plenty of research around strength and its um, role to play in performance improvement that uh, I think, you know, that's a, that's a really, it's a gold mine that people haven't discovered yet. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, even the technical side's a funny subject in distance running. I think if you speak about golf or swimming, mm. obviously the first thing that comes to people's mind is, okay, how's your, how's your technique, how's your form? Mm. But I think uh, that when, when it comes to distance running, especially anything over sort of four, 800, the, te- the technical side of the technique aspect of it is, is highly forgotten. Is that something yeah. that you've noticed? And Not do you reckon really. like the technical side is, is just as important with the longer events as the shorter? Yeah, well, in the majority of cases, I'm sure the listeners will be able to find, a, you know, uh, exceptions to this as there always are, even, even in the power events. I don't think Michael Johnson's a, a poster boy for technique, but he's pretty damn good. Mm. So, you know, people can run well in spite of their uh, technique, but, uh, you know, if you're getting injuries and... Uh, and niggles and you you think that there's more potential then technique is really an easy area i think to look at and refine and just get a more efficient movement you know if you look at your motor car if it's not running efficiently it's using more fuel more oil more wear and tear on the car why do we see our own mechanical body as being any different so i think it's worthwhile looking at that um, that technical model and um, and taking that into running for sure. Yeah, because you do some pretty like highly in-depth technique work with a lot of athletes, don't you? What are, what are some of the components of their technique that you're looking at when you actually bring them in? Yeah, when I look at um, athletes and uh, look, it, it doesn't even have to be running, you know, even walking, you've still got those, uh, those deficiencies if you like. But I'll take a, a photograph of someone front on, side on, back on 
And anyone could do this. I mean, uh, take a photo with your shirt off up against a brick wall and uh, use the brick line to give you a sense of alignment of where your shoulders are. Just look at your shoulders and look at the, how one side is going to be sitting up higher than the other. You don't think that's going to affect the way that your arm drives through or the way your upper body rotates? I can assure you that it does. And when you look at that and then you start thinking, well, yeah, look at how that left shoulder sits up. Maybe that's why your right shin sore because you're landing more heavily on that side. So it'll change your gait. Look at that same view from a side on. You know, is your head sitting forward? Have you got rounding of your shoulders? You've got no bum there to speak of. Where did your power come from? So, you know, I'll do a postural analysis like that and then give the patient a feedback. That serves two purposes. One, it makes them aware of an area where we can work. But also, you know, if they work on that for probably six, six to 12 weeks, they can see, they can actually physically see the change in their body and that's going to translate into more efficient mechanics. So the other thing I would say also, and I actually say to my patients regularly here, that if I ask someone to do a bench press, they're not gonna go off on Monday and do a set of bench press and then be complaining because they're not stronger. It, it, common sense tells you that. Well, how long does it take to get stronger? Neurally, going back in nerve stuff, you'll probably get more efficient at moving that way. So you might even lift a bit uh, better after only a few weeks. But in terms of muscle adaptation, it's more something like six weeks. So uh, a cycle is usually around six weeks. So if you're going to start on a strength program and you're going to do it for three or four weeks and then go, oh, well, I listened to this whacker on a podcast and he said you should do strength. Well, all it's done is just taken up more of my time. I'd rather be out running than in the bloody boring gym. Yeah. Well, you're probably two weeks away from having a bit of a breakthrough in terms of what you're doing. I have to consistently work through it for about six weeks, get the postural change and the movement change. So that's the other part of what I do is I'll video my athletes and try to find a line so that they can run along the line, get a sense of what the foot placement is, what the running gait is. I'll video them from side on, from behind and in front, and then look at that and break that down. And it invariably links up with their postural mechanics. And then we start making an appropriate program tailored around what the needs are of that individual. Mm. It's really interesting. On the uh, uh, Some of the members of the, the Relaxed Running podcast can submit their technique through and we take the same mm. uh, sort of a- a- analysis. And in fact, I'm going to try and put a few of them onto you because I think to be able to have that in-depth analysis of their technique would be really helpful. Well, I know we didn't talk about this before. We haven't talked about anything actually beforehand, (laughs) but um, let's say the first two to get that in, we'll do that for free. So that would normally cost them if they came in, you know, by the time at all, they come and get their thing about 160 bucks. So I'll give them 160 bucks worth of um, Uh. postural and gait analysis at no cost and recommendations of what they should do. So the first two. Fantastic. Yeah, no, thanks, yeah. thanks a lot. But one of the blokes actually that I, I thought I'd just ask you a question about, he's been um, struggling with, with shin splints mm. and uh, he, he shot a message through on the forum the other day just asking for a little bit of guidance around, around shin splints and what some of the common causes are. And he's been to a couple of physios and just hasn't mm. seen a lot of breakthrough. He said he's been patient, been doing the exercises, but still um, having a lot of trouble. A posterior shin splints, I think he was mm. told it is. What are, yeah. like, what are some of the triggers for, for an injury like that? Oh, it's multifactorial and it just it, usually when you're getting injuries like that they're, they're what we all term an overuse injury and it could be just that maybe he's doing too much mm-hmm. um, a lot of people don't want to mention the R word in, in running other than running and the R word's rest or recovery no one can have a day off um, 
your body needs time to rest and recover and if you don't take that it's going to enforce one and that's why your shins are that damn sore you're going to have to take time off i program in a day of recovery it can be active recovery they don't have to be um you know sitting inside a room but do active recovery it could be massage um uh, foam roller dry needling whatever it might be uh, there's a multitude of things but it could also be uh, his mechanics so the mechanics are wrong it could be the surface he's running on maybe they're too too um hard mm-hmm. maybe he's too heavy mm-hmm. and um he's just too much bulk for what he's trying to do um, changing surfaces can also be that maybe your shoes aren't right they might be the top line and the fanciest brand on the market but they just don't suit his foot so it's multifactorial until you start uh, breaking those things down um, you're not going to really know um, it, it then could also come back to again we talk about strength but um, it could be even just the functional movement and the strength around through his calf and the posterior chain so posterior chains is low back his glutes and hamstring um, maybe not not uh, firing properly, so we need to get that strong. So all of those things, you, you just go after what I'd call your big rocks, get the big ones and just keep narrowing it down. But we've had pretty plenty of success, I think, with guys with shin splints to, uh, to move them on. Yeah, beautiful. It must be a frustrating scene to be involved in when you just continually see these same injuries over and over and you know oh. that so many of them are treated so simply. Uh, you know, I was actually talking to my son the other day and uh, we were, we were uh, I'm in Sydney, and uh, we were walking along and I made a comment about this person that was walking in front of us and he says, do you ever shut up talking about biomechanics? <laughs> and I said, it's a bit like an affliction, like that, um, oh, the, what was that movie where the guy, he didn't realise he was dead and he kept seeing dead people? And that's how I sort of feel like when I'm walking in shopping malls. <laughs> I, I see people walk by and I don't just see someone walk, I don't notice how trendy their jeans are or their shoes. I look at their running gait and I'm thinking, you really need to work on your glute strength or, you know, you poor thing, you've got, really got problems with your upper back. But, you know, you can see. Mm. So it's a bit of an affliction somewhat sometimes, but I, I love it. And it's just part of... Um, of what I do and um, yeah that's just who I am so no I don't get I don't get tired of it and let's face it if people um, knew all about this stuff well then I wouldn't have a job to do so it's nice for them to come in in and see but I am a I'm a big believer in just go after the the most logical thing first and work back from there rather than out for the you know the the, the magical pixie of, of performance you know half the time they don't exist so just go after the big one and you know I, I got very interested in uh, nutrition and hydration in fact uh, many years ago when I um, I was actually working at Essendon Football Club and I did my master's thesis and I did it on hydration in performance and I literally took the piss out of the players before every major session so they all had to wee into these little bottles and they were very compliant they did a great job but they um, they did that and um, then I would measure each one uh, through a special little unit called a refractometer and we'd look at what's called the specific gravity of the urine sample and it could tell me the level of hydration hydrated status that they were at and then i would do that before a game and after a game and link that with their weight and in doing that we were able to see if there was a link between your hydrated hydration status and injuries and your and your hydration status and even decision-making and things like that. And it was really fascinating because you don't have to be very dehydrated uh, before that becomes a factor. And the, the biggest surprise I got in doing that was that we don't even know we're dehydrated. If you're thirsty, you're, you're already in a state of dehydration. And 
So a lot of people, you know, go off, say, running, and they don't feel thirsty, and they don't want to fill up on fluid before they run. Um, they're already dehydrated, and that's impacting on their performance. And, you know, I, I do a lot of things in and around that, that space, and it's not just athletes. We're talking about... I do a bit of work in Sydney uh, with some students at University of Technology and we do a long-term placement at uh, Goodwin Nursing Home up there, retirement home, and uh, we're talking with the patients there that, you know, they've got all manner of things but they feel dizzy and lightheaded and all these sort of things. They put that down to, I'm just old, I'm just old. And when we do their hydration status, they're not old, they're actually in a severe state of dehydration. And uh, yeah, so we, we go about that and they think it's a miracle cure. So we, my point of all this is saying to you, you know, we rush off to let's be on the right diet, let's um, uh, and get the right supplements and do all these things and let's make sure we've got all of our, we're doing, you know, 120 Ks a week, let's make sure that, you know, I've got the best compression garments and I'm gonna spend $300 on those shoes and I'm bringing in, especially from the United States. And what they really need to improve their performance as well as those things is what's your hydration status like? What's your nutrition really like? Are you getting, are you making sure the things that are really controllable for you as an individual are right? You know, again, to try and use a car analogy, why would you rush off and buy a performance car and put diesel in it? Assuming that diesel's not going to be a performance car. Is it, it's the wrong fuel. So make sure that that's right. You know, when I look at, um, you know, you lose your, um, endurance capability significantly just 1.3% drop in your body weight I mean, you know it's a, it's a, it's a no brainer just just fix it mm. it's easy drink yeah. yeah and it's when we say drink I know there's a lot of talk and the running scene likes to you know complicate simple issues as we sort of just discovered in this conversation but when we're speaking about hydration we're just speaking about water or because there's a lot of talk about replacing that's, your that's a things. great question actually because uh, what we found, and, and uh, subsequent studies, and even previous one studies, found that if you drink just water, it actually stimulates your kidney. So you tend to go to the toilet more. You'll also sweat more easily. So it, it can actually move you into a state of dehydration quicker. So especially for if you're a distance runner, so you'd be better to have um, uh, something that's got something to help the cells uptake and hold that fluid. So the easiest one, you know, you've got electrolyte drinks that are like Powerade and Gatorade and these sort of things. They actually are formulated uh, for a purpose, but to just have that at, on your desk while you're at work, well, you know, you might be super hydrated, you're gonna have rotten teeth too, because there's a hell of a lot of sugar in them. So you, you know, I, I think they're more the performance drinks. So what do you have? Well, the simple ones, just put a squeeze of lemon juice into the water. One, it makes it taste a little bit more interesting, but it also helps the cells uptake and hold the fluid. So just a squeeze of lemon juice is, is um, good. Um, if you're looking for a light meal and you know you've got a run coming up, well, go for, I don't know, you can beat um, chicken noodle soup. It's fluid predominantly, it's salty, and it's got carbs in it, and uh, you'll easily digest it. So just simple little things like that. But, you know, going back on that other stuff, if you really get, get right into it and you're an ultramarathon or you're into the Ironman or something like that, if you don't drink, oh, I can't drink while I'm competing, well, you've got to learn that. You've got to... Got to um, work out a way. If, uh, if your coach is saying to you, look, your stroke uh, in the pool can be improved if we do this, well, you're going to work on that if it's going to grain you just that little fraction of time. Yeah, we don't see the same benefit for, for that, you know. Look, 4% dehydration sounds like a lot, but, you know, if you're a um, 70 um, kilo person, well, you know, that's only, what, three, something like that. It's, it's not, not going to be much. 
if you decrease by 4% drop over the course of a race, that has a significant impact on what we call your stroke volume. So that's your cardiac output. That's going to have a direct impact on your performance. It's a no-brainer. You know, you can, you can go and buy your $500 shoes from Ribble if you want, but yeah, have a have a, some chicken noodle soup. Yeah, beautiful. Um, the other question that it sort of sparked in me just then was, uh, do you just like do you do you measure or do you? sort of offer uh, how much a person should drink based solely on their body weight or is that based on their, their response from the urine yeah, sample? Yeah, well, well but they don't even have to be... Once once they understand where their hydration status is and uh, uh, as I say, you just use a simple little test like a refractometer. You can actually, I think, go to the chemist and buy things like, I think they might even be called dipsticks and just put them into your wee and you can have a look on the colour chart. So you'll soon work it out, but just link that to your own weight. And if you're measuring your weight pre and post run, then you can see if you lose, say, a kilo while you've been on the run to replace that because you're going to get what we call metabolic burning. So that'll um, use up more fluid. So if you lose a kilo, drink one and a half litres to replace. That's one and a half times replenishment to bring yourself back to what we call homeostasis or a simple, uh, your, your level of balance. Mm. Yeah. So no, if people want to know more about that, I've, I've got it. Um, well, I've got too much. I, you really shouldn't have so much information on we, but I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, if they want, I'm, I'm happy to just send it to them. I, I've got, um, I've written a couple of articles in around um, hydration, how much you should drink, and uh, you know, how do you know? And I, I can back it with a lot of research papers if they want to go and have a look at that. And uh, I'm in the process now of putting one together of you know what are the things that you could could have, like the chicken noodle soup thing. You know, so what what sort of things could you have practical? Make it practical. I mean, we get two people that are in sports science, you know, we go on with a lot of crap, really, to make ourselves more sound smart than what we really are, <laughs> you know, all these terms. But at the end of the day, yeah, get yourself in the right weight, drink enough water, eat the right foods, get yourself strong. Oh, got a PB. Yeah, it's interesting because I can imagine uh, someone who's been in the field for such a long time, you've got a voice that people would listen to, but for Mate. someone to hear uh, someone, you know, say oh. drink chicken noodle soup over a, a sports drink, it must be, you know, it must take a little bit of courage to go, hey, you know what, there's some other options out there oh, for no, you. There are. <laughs> well, you know, Coca-Cola probably wouldn't like to hear me say it, but, you know, uh, chicken noodle soup's a pretty good a pretty good option, I reckon. But no, I was described the other day, I was introduced actually in front of about 400 people, and it was the first time um, I was called a veteran. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I've been around the block more than once. But um, yeah, it's interesting the things you pick up. But quite often, it's the simple things. You know, we were talking before about recovery, and uh, um, I came across the paper not so long ago, and it talked about um, one of the best forms of recovery is a hot bath with Epsom salts in it. Mm. I can remember my grandmother talking about that back in the seventies. That the best thing for cramp was Epsom salts in your bath. You know, so here we are. It's a new a new discovery. But no, I think uh, just keep things simple. And But you've also got to work out what's right for you. I think that's another area actually where we'll find um, a lot of uh, advancement and change in performance in that I think we've got to coach ethnicity. And uh, I think that a, uh, I'm um, mainly Irish Celtic background. So I think my capacity to handle things like carbohydrates um, maybe because of the potatoes, I don't know. <laughs> but my, my ability to handle carbohydrates is better than, say, an Indigenous Australian where they didn't have very much carbohydrates up until, you know, 150, 200 years ago. And suddenly they've been inflicted, Indigenous Australians, with, um, a, you know, a highly processed, refined carbohydrate diet. And what do you know? Their bodies can't cope with it. 
and they put on a lot of weight and uh, and we say, oh no, well, that's just the way it is, but no. And I think if you look at um, different the Mediterranean diets and how they respond to that, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And that's another thing we've been doing. Um, I've been supervising two PhD students in uh, visual search and uh, when I was with the Greater Western Sydney Giants, um, the club um, bought in conjunction with the University of Western Sydney these glasses that actually measure the movement of your eyes. And so why we were doing that? So I was looking for talent in Western Sydney and Western New South Wales, and a lot of those places, I don't even know how to spell AFL, so how do, you, <laughs> how do you go in and find talent? So I was trying to find a different way, and we were looking at that through visual search, and you know, it's very sad today, I'm reading in the paper about polypharma and the acquired brain injury he had from so many concussions, and uh, it's leading us as an organisation or the AFL into you know, real genuine research into concussion through mm. visual search. These glasses can move, uh, measure the movement of your eyes, and people's eyes, uh, you can they move quicker in set patterns if they're good decision makers. And the interesting thing was, uh, what we found was that a, um, a an Australian, for want of a better term, a white Australian, has got a visual acuity of let's say it's X, but when we use that with Indigenous um, athletes or, or kids their visual search pattern was X plus 20. They've got a far bigger scale of uh, choice for their visual search. And when you think of the way uh, Indigenous play AFL, they seem to have just have more time and they see things that others don't see around them. They just have better movement. Through. I think it's linked to visual search. All of these things are all tied up in how we uh, uh, treat individuals and your ethnicity and I think that's linked up with nutrition and hydration and training. That They're is, all the same thing. That is such an interesting point. I've never even considered the fact that ethnicity might have something to do with the way that you handle carbohydrates, for instance. But like, I, what I, even just? I, the, I live in a strange world, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you do. My, my, my brain. Oh, up. I can I used, tell you. I can I tell to, the audience will love it. I used to think that um, you know people in athletics were a bit strange, really. You know, they're, <laughs> they're a bit odd. And, and then I thought, yeah, well, that's probably because it's an individual sport and it attracts some of those weird ones. And it wasn't until I was probably been in it for 20 years that I actually realised that I'm one of them. I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit odd myself. <laughs> oh, no, get on with it. <laughs> so, Quiddy, something like uh, even jumping on my heritage, you know how they do those blood tests or mm. those um, mm. saliva samples? Yes. Well, that might be a really yeah. helpful step I, for an look, athlete to take. I'm, I'm, all, I'm just postulating here. I think that uh, DNA, ethnicity of individuals could be an area where we move forward in terms of individualisation of training. Like I'm here doing... Uh, postural analysis and uh, gait analysis of people, why not do a, um, a, a DNA analysis of a person to say, well, this person's going to respond better to this type? I mean, we know that some people perform better because of their fibre type. So if you've got more fast twitch fibres, you're going to be an explosive runner. If you've got slow twitch, you're going to be a more of an endurance type athlete. Well, we know that. Well, why would that not relate to hydration as well and a person's ability to adapt to certain stimuli? I'm really fortunate, mate. I've got a, a terrific squad of mainly sprinters that I work with in Sydney and more than half of them are African Australians uh, that have come here. The whole body type and structure, their bone structure is, is different. Um, their hips are on a position where they're basically falling forward. They, they can't help but move forward. They, they're literally built for it. Well, why not work to people's strengths? Work to that and just keep honing in on that. But I think sometimes we try to, to coach an athlete 
oh, well, no, you just have to do 20K runs on a Sunday. But is that the best thing for that individual? He might need 20, he might only need 15, but needs to be doing particular strength work and couple it all around. So individualise it. I think uh, distance running is probably guilt, more guilty of it, probably just because of sheer numbers than, than the other disciplines in, in athletics, just because of the sheer numbers, but they're, they're guiltier of just one model fits all. And uh, if you happen to come through, you know, as a coach, I often ask myself, is my athlete going really well because of my training program? Or are they going well in spite of it? Mm. Uh, there's a big difference. Uh, so I judge myself on that. I also judge myself on my least talented athlete. How well are they, one, improving? And maybe even more importantly, how much are they enjoying it? Um, because that's a reflection of me as a coach and my ability to coach. If you get the results, that's great. Uh, your results will come anyway. If you're consistent with what you do, you're going to get um, pockets of excellence that will just pop up. But uh, I think we, yeah, you've got to pay attention to all these other things and just be consistent in applying your training model around your technical model, um, uh, your recovery model, your strength model, uh, the whole thing about other outliers like um, hydration and the like, and then the individual needs. You know, they're complex, we're complex bodies. I, I learned many years ago to just look at, look at a word and if you, if you actually, if people listen to this, write down on a piece of paper the word disease. And if you're not very really good, if you, you know, because some of the sprinters probably listening, it's spelled D-I-S-E-A-S-E. <laughs> now, now that you've written that down, divide the word. Mm. And it's dis-ease, not at ease, not relaxed. Well, you know, it's a, a disease comes from that. And uh, everything comes back to how do we get ourselves at ease, whether that's at ease of movement, ease of of running whatever it might be and what can facilitate that whether that be strength whether that be mobility whether that be stability whether that be hydration whether that be nutrition whatever it is do whatever it takes to get the performance mm. but look for the outliers they're quite often right in front of you the whole time yeah that's a really interesting point and I think just to go back on what you said before I find it interesting especially here in Australia that one size fits all model which is just given out to so many distance runners I remember speaking to my coach Joe Carmody um, mm. uh, years and years ago and I said oh, I want to get my hands on Craig Mottram's training program and he said to me mate it's nothing special I said what, Joe, like, how do you look at the times the bloke's run he goes he could write his own program and be as good as he is mm. um, in most cases because of the fact he's just got that natural almost like a Stuart McSwade he's doing the same programs as you know, 90% of other Australian athletes, but just seems to be taking it to a level that a lot of athletes can't. So you think that could be more, um, well, obviously it's more more genetic as well as just adapting to that training rather than just having the magic formula through his oh, training sessions. Look, I think there's a magic formula for an individual and you've got yeah. to find that. Now, there's no doubt that, you know, there's a, an underlying basis of uh, what you need to do. But, um, yeah, you've got to find that for that individual. But... I, I do cringe, and I, again, I judge myself on this, where, you know, you look at um, how some some programs go. Like, I've been, I'm 55 now, and I actually started coaching when I was 17. So I've been coaching, like, you know, more than 30 years. It's a it's a long time to be coaching, and, and I've been coaching at a high level, fortunate to, um, for the latter part of that, probably the last 15 plus years of that. That's great. That just talks about volume. But if I'm doing the same program every year, I haven't been coaching for 35 years. Mm. I've been coaching for one year and I've just repeated it 35 times. So are the coaches listening? Are you evolving? What are you doing to 
challenge your thinking or look for different ways or different. And if you haven't done anything, if you haven't done any own personal development or tried something different, well, then don't kid yourself. And if this is hitting a target, it's been worthwhile listening to the podcast. Mm. But yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there that, yeah, they just repeat the same thing over and over. And that's actually a definition of insanity as well. Expecting a different result. Yeah, yeah. no, you're right. Um, some of those, I know we're on a bit of a time frame here, Quinn. We've got about 10 minutes left till I've been demanded to get out of here. Um, but uh, you just mentioned some of the underlying factors, which obviously uh, for every athlete are crucial. So things like running, things like strength training, things like nutrition. What other sort of components would you encourage athletes to look at, um, which would go in that sort of core foundation of, of essentials if you want to be able to not only you know run better but recover effectively? I think um, one thing that... Uh, the rest of the world actually uh, looks at Australia and yet when I move around in Australia we don't use it enough and it's a really simple tool in fact it's so simple that you couldn't believe this could be effective but there's been study after study done that links this method to things like heart rate and heart rate variability and sleep and uh, it's a simple thing called rate of perceived exertion or RPE and all it is is you have a little chart and it goes from zero to 10. And you do a session and about 10 minutes after the session when you've had a bit of recovery, you look at that chart and you say, well, let my rate that at six out of 10 on that scale that's there. And you do that consistently. And you can then see from your athletes whether they're coping or not coping. And I've used that now for more than 20 years in, in a football setting. And we could tell from that whether an athlete was getting sick or whether they were overtraining long before I had time to download their GPS data or their heart rate variabilities or any of that stuff. Um, that was, that's one area. Uh, the other area that I've become interested in the last couple of years for my own personal reasons, is, is that in fact around sleep. And, you know, we, we all hear the old thing of, you know, you've got to have, you know, eight hours sleep a, a day, but it's not just the sleep, it's the quality of your sleep, but how do you know that? And right now as I'm um, talking to you, I'm trialling this with a couple of my patients to look at how they're coping with the programs that I'm giving them through their sleep. That can tell me. And... Uh, you probably just think that I'm very fashionable while I'm sitting here with you, that I'm wearing a ring. But it's not just a ring. It's actually a thing called URA. And I'm not plugging it. I've got no, no. link to them. O-U-R-A. Um, in fact, if they want to have a link to me, I'm happy to. But um, no, it's a, 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 a ring that actually measures your heart rate. So it's similar to things like you might get on a Fitbit or an a, a Apple Watch or whatever. But this is far more accurate. And I've been mucking around with it now for the best part of a year and uh, quite quite impressed with them. So it's got a lot of sensors inside the ring yeah, okay. that'll measure everything from uh, when I go into my deepest part of my sleep, REM, uh, to um, even my temperature of a night, um, how long I've slept, and I record that. I just tap it onto my phone and it uploads and it gives me a chart off every day and then compares that to the week, to the month or to the year if I want. And I can have a look at how I'm coping um, with the training I'm doing. So I'm looking at that now as a means of um, uh, assessing my patients across the country that I work with um, to just see are they coping with what I'm giving them to do? Are they in fact doing it? Mm. I can see now if they're actually doing the training um, and linking that with RPE that we talked about before. So I think I've got two very powerful weapons in there to tell me and if they're not coping with that, well then it means my program's not appropriate for that individual, I'm giving them too much 
or they're not doing the required recovery from that. So what do I bring in for that? So either way, it's the information is empowering me to bring a better result for my patient or athlete or client. It's incredible how much you can just take out of a ring, isn't it? It is sure. very fashionable, by the way. So oh, what yeah. you just what you got an app and you just connect it with the app. Hmm, yeah. Uh, and where do you where do you get these? I, well, I, I actually company. found it online because I um oh, we can talk about it another time. Yeah. Um, uh, why I got into the sleep area, but um yeah, I found it online, and I'm sure there's others, but I've just been very impressed with how accurate it is. Um, you know, I might wake up at one o'clock in the morning for whatever reason. And then when I look back on my report, there it is. It'll have the very time I woke up. It's it's there in literally black and white for me to see. Um, but it's uh, you know I ordered online. And they sent me like a little um, sizing um, rings, and I just um, let them know via online again what size I was. A week or two later, in came my ring. But I think I paid about three hundred bucks for it. But you can pay. $3,000. If you want one with diamonds in it so it looks like a fashionable dress ring, go for your life. I'm not in that league. So I just went for the, uh, for the one. But look, people don't, my point is, people don't even notice. And I can wear that out and no one would even give it a second look. When you go out, you know, sometimes you don't want to wear your sports watch or whatever. Or, uh, yeah, you don't need that. But yeah, I, I just find it's, it's becoming a, an important thing. So you're asking, you know, where are things going? I think we're going into that, that area as well. I've had a little bit to do with um, um, technology around garments, and I think that's another one. I think we're not that far away. A thing called nanotechnology, which is where uh, we can have so much in, even in the thread of a garment, and uh, things like heart rate monitors and that sort of stuff. I don't think that that's going to be there in another 15 to 20 years. I, I really believe that uh, we'll wear a garment, say a football jumper or a, a singlet for running, and that's going to measure our heart rate, our heat, our sweat rate. Um, everything will be just through the garment technology. Again, I'm out there, but I do think that's where it's going. I, mean, this is, I know the audience is going to love it. I wish we had a little bit more time, but next time you're down, we'll have that. Well, maybe not next time, but the next yeah. couple of times, yeah, you know, yeah. I'd love to uh, uh, try and book a, a bigger chunk of time with you and pick your brain. I just thought, uh, I had a question from a, a listener a couple of weeks ago. I thought I'd just throw yeah. it at you and just get your opinion. Um, he asked me... Uh, he wanted to find out when it comes to your heart rate if you're doing an interval session mm. um what is a healthy level or what's a, a like an appropriate level what would you expect your heart rate to to drop to mm. um in the interval period of a session i can tell obviously yeah, no, it's going to be very different no, for no, good, good, no good good question i think you know basically i just work on you know the percentages and over time if this is an adult um uh, runner mm-hmm. uh, doing intervals this is a general answer. I don't know the person, haven't, haven't assessed them, but I'd go off about 120 beats per minute. So, you know, they might get their heart rate. Your, your, your max heart rate's around 220 minus your age. Now, that's a general thing. So someone at this, this might have a maximum heart rate of 210, but someone else might be up around 240. Who knows? But uh, general consensus internationally is it's 220 beats minus your age. So then we work it out on a percentage format and most of the people that I work with in running, I'll go down to about 120 beats per minute and then they're really good, good to go again. Now, you know, if I'm working with a group doing intervals and, uh, you know, Billy's at 125 and Sally's at 118, we're going. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Some, some will drop in around. But I use that as my general guide. And, uh, yeah, but, but you then muck around with that and look at your consistency. I, I work on an acronym in my training programs of CNN. I use that with my athletes because CNN, the first thing that um, 
you think of as the cable news network. Yeah. So I want them when there's a landslide in Venezuela or you know another mass shooting in Los Angeles or probably Sydney, um, that the first thing they think of is not the devastation of that, but they're thinking of me and they're thinking of their training program. So CNN stands for consistency and the other end stands for no compromise and the other end stands for no doubt. So consistency, no compromise, no doubt. So if we work back the other way, if you have no doubt about what you're, that the training you're doing is applicable for you and your stage of where you're at, then you can't not succeed in my opinion. If you don't compromise, you can't say I'm an elite athlete or I really want to qualify for say the Boston Marathon, but oh look, yeah, there's a party on, so I'll just let my hair down on that night or yeah, no, look, I'll probably go oh, stuff it, I won't go to the gym today, I'll go, I'll start that next week. You can't compromise and expect you're gonna get a, an excellent outcome. And then we come to my favourite one of consistency that um, even for my athletes when they're running, I'm not I'm interested in their PB obviously and we want to we ultimately want to get that, but I get them to work on a mean five. So we look at the top five results they've got and average that out. And if they perform to their mean five, therefore with consistency, we're going to get a, um, a shot of excellence there. Yeah. And out of that consistency becomes excellence. That's their new PB, and then their mean five moves up. But I look at consistency with what they're doing. So if you're looking at the performances, say, in an interval set, um, and you're going off a 120 beats per minute recovery, for example, if your athlete's on a, a decline, well, then the recovery is not sufficient. Yeah. So then you go up that, and it might be that they need to have their heart rate at 110, and the other one needs, they can probably go to 130 because they're actually getting quicker. So, as a general answer, start at 120 and then work out through my acronym of CNN. If you've got no compromise and no doubt in your program, but you're consistently dropping off, it means that your um, recovery is not adequate. Yeah, beautiful, Quinny. I'm looking at the time, it's it's, uh, 2.15. I'm gonna have to get out of here. Mate, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll have to do it again sometime. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Quinny.